the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. All right, Gary, did I lose you? No, oh, I'm here. You're still I, there. I was... bra- you're a brave man, Gary. All right. Here, here, multiple choice. Here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or been unable to answer, um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget in a state like California, for example, fifty cents out of every dollar goes to education. Okay. So if we have a $110 billion budget this year, $55 billion is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does, and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education. And then our kids cross the the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma. We know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. California, on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California, on average, is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yes. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? A little less than that. A little less than that, but, but, but ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's 10,000 per students and about 30, stu- let's, let's tell you what we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say 25 students. So $10,000 per student and 25 students per classroom, that means $250,000 by my math. Am I right? Yes. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that $50,000 was going to the educator's salary? I. Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? Sixty thousand. Sixty-four average. Sixty-four thousand. Yep. Average. Uh, all right. Sixty-four thousand. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're, we're going to say uh, approximately uh, after we've paid the teacher who's earning an average of about sixty-four thousand dollars. We'll do some round numbers here. Uh, $185,000 of the two hundred and fifty thousand per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going? <laughs> so this is a true-false question, or this is, you actually want to know where the money is? I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former uh, superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, he said, you were constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you ought to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money, I've got to wonder, where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers? Okay, well, I've got an answer for you. 
But it was a long question, so you have to give me a, a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree. Uh, we obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, so we would agree that to pour, we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, et cetera, and not be gobbled up by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey, a new film, what's happening, which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there was a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called Waiting for Superman, uh, and this one's called The Cartel. And it shows what's happening in New Jersey, which is absolutely a, corale- a, a you know, corollary with what's happening in California and, and other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway. And that is, it showed that there are over 400 school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year. Not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state. And that's off the backs of teachers' dues, which comes out of taxpayer money as well, as you know. So the money goes down a black hole, and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. I mean, we don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are It's just like our United States government. We have... What was it? By the year 2025, there are going to be more people in the Department of Agriculture than there are going to be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today. Let me interrupt you, Gary, and say what a breath of fresh air. You have done. You've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally... I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator to finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done, when you look at the layers of bureaucracy, as we have, you know, the local board of of education, and then we got the state board of education, and then we got the feds on top of that, and everybody having something to say, on average, we're looking at three people collecting a salary in the state of California attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom. Yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these these glorified paper pushers right. that add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education. Sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now. You can send me the hate email later. Not one adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids. You know what? I tell you... I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books 
and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock, and barrel. Number one, we don't need three layers of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions. The state level, the feds, goodbye. You're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one classroom teacher, flip that around. If you flip it around, I'm okay with that. I wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the cover, as you just did now here on radio, and, 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 and let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education. I couldn't have said it better, and apparently I, it's a good answer. So do I get $64,000? You know what? If, if you work with us to get edu- more people educated in this arena, Gary, absolutely, and then some. Hey, we're out of time. I want to have you back on, Gary. I'm sorry we're out of time here. We're going to get you scheduled on earlier next time on the program. Um, I like this organization. And finally, somebody that knows how to tell the truth. American Association of Educators, aaeteachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, with the start of the new semester, many parents in the Bay Area are getting a bit of an education about public education. Did you know, for example, that a school nurse working in California public schools may not give an aspirin to your child without parental permission? But that same nurse may arrange transportation for your daughter to plan parenthood to have an abortion, and by law, they're not required to tell you. By California law, transgendered and questioning students may use the bathroom of their choice without regard to their biological gender or impact on other students of the opposite sex. For years, sex education in public schools had been optional. If parents wanted their children to take a sexual health class, they had to sign up for the instruction. But a new state law in effect this year requires all California public school students to take sex education beginning in the seventh grade. And reading of the Bible or teaching about Christian beliefs in public schools? Well, that's against the law in California. But you might be surprised to learn that one California school district openly teaches about Islam, even encouraging students to memorize portions of the Quran, while the Bible and Christianity remain off-limits. Brian Recton joins us in studio to talk a bit about the KFAX back-to-school half-off tuition opportunity. And boy, there's got to be a sense of some parents now with the start of the new semester and their kids are coming back questioning things, bringing questionable homework assignments, and wondering what is going on in public education. Well, it's clearly a different world today that we're living in in the public school environment. And Uh, A lot of our listeners are aware of a program that we've been offering for six years where it's called uh, Back to School at Half Price. What a lot of parents may not know is it's not too late, even though they've probably already enrolled their children into the public school system. Those first uh, semester report cards are going to come out. They've already probably had conversations with with their children about questionable teachings at the school. It's not too late. We have a list of Christian schools on our website at kfax.com. And these schools are just waiting with open arms, especially with families from the public school system, where they're going to get a quality education that's not going to disagree with the standards and the beliefs of the, of the home life. 
And uh, those schools are listed on our website. So for those that have been listening uh, over the years, we've been doing this for six years. We have over 185 families that have enrolled in Christian school as a result of these vouchers, where a family pays half price for that first year where they enroll their child in a Christian school. More than enough time for you to gauge the quality of the school, the quality of the education, and and then make a determination if you want to re-enroll. You're not under any obligation to, but the option is there to re-enroll and keep your child in that environment that agrees with what you're teaching them at home. And I would imagine down through the years, Brian, because you have the opportunity to speak directly with many of the families, that the reports coming back of the difference that Christian education is having in the lives of their students have to be remarkable enough that making the way, making the sacrifice to continue that enrollment throughout their scholastic career becomes a top priority because they've seen the stark difference, not just between many of the moral values that we spoke of earlier, but the percentile of students that graduate from a Christian school and move on to a four-year college or university is higher than in public education. In fact, public education, they're having a difficult time even getting students to graduate. Only 85% of public high school students in California actually make it to graduation. Well, you know, it's interesting you'd say that because we have some of the schools that are listed on our website that have participated all six years that have a 100% acceptance rate of their high school seniors graduating and going on to college. The quality of the education is unquestionable. Um, The standards are high. Again, you're not going to have to filter when your kids come home, what did you learn today? Actually, you're going to be anxious for them to come home and hear what they learned today if they're in a Christian school. The real point uh, for, for today is for parents to understand that it's not too late. If they've already had conversations about, gee, I wish we, you know, I wish we weren't in the public school. I wish we could pull our kids out. At least go to the website where we have the schools listed. All the information on these schools, the websites, the address, the contact information. Feel free to call the schools. Just tell them that you're exploring the possibility of a KFAX voucher and uh, go take a tour of the school. You can do all that, then come back, claim the voucher, Get your child into a school environment where they're not only going to get a quality education, but it's going to be Christ-centered, and it's not going to be in disagreement with what you're teaching them at home. And the never-too-late message is important, I think, particularly for parents who have seen their students now matriculate to the next level. So they finished mid-school, now they're in junior high school, completed their junior high school career, they've moved on to high school, and the parents are beginning to wonder, wow, what's happened here? Mm. This new school is not like the last one, and we're really concerned about our child's education, not only scholastically, but morally and spiritually as well. And that's the important thing that you point out, Brian. It's not just a matter of top-notch education, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as we used to say, but it's making sure that the principles that are being taught and underscored day-to-day in your child's life by arguably the largest influence, because they spend the most time, more time than most parents do, six, seven hours a day, making sure that what is being taught and underscored is, in fact, in harmony with 
your beliefs, the teachings of your mm-hmm. church, and in the biblical fashion in which you would like to raise your son or daughter. And, and not to mention, Craig, you know, I talk to a lot of parents that have pulled their kids out of public school. One of the big complaints that they had was that basically the, the, the public schools teaching crowd control. I mean, you got classrooms with 30 or 40 students um, in, a, in a private school environment. It's half that in most cases. Uh, the, the quality of the education we've already talked about. I, I would encourage listeners to go to the website. We have a map that shows where all these schools are. So clearly, you know, if there's no school participating in your geographic area, well, then, then it may not be an option for you. But if there is a school or two in your geographic area, at least it's something to pray about. It's something to consider. And then when that report card comes out or your child comes home with, you know, another issue that doesn't agree with your teaching at home, well, then you're that much closer to at least contacting the schools, meeting with them, taking a tour. Any family listening, any parent listening now can call me uh, on that website at kfax.com where they click on the banner for the back to school. They'll see my name, my number, my email address. Be happy to answer any questions that families might have. So if throughout this year you've thought it not necessary and have discovered in the opening weeks of the new semester, oh, yes, a private and Christian-based education is very necessary for my son or daughter. And then, of course, you had thought heretofore it wasn't possible. Well, actually, now it is possible, thanks to the KFAX half-off tuition opportunity. Details available again on the web along with that interactive map at kfax.com. Just click on the Back to School banner, and it'll take you directly to the page with all that information. You can do the research on the school near you, make an appointment to take a tour of it, and find out whether or not you conclude that not only is Christian education right for your child, but also, thanks to the KFAX half-off back-to-school opportunity, affordable for your child. Online at kfax.com, that's kfax.com, or you can call toll-free for more information, 800-947-5329, that's 800-947-KFAX. And Brian, I know that down through the years you've heard many exciting and encouraging testimonies that have come back from parents and grandparents, too, who Mm -hmm. have uh, made the effort taken the time and made the investment in their child's life. And I guess at the end of the day, the results really speak for themselves. Craig, I have a scrapbook of uh, cards, uh, letters, emails. I even have some families that send me photographs of their children, you know, when the when the school does the class photos, and they'll send me one. They just, they want to keep me abreast of what's happening. And you know, in many cases, these children are, it's life transforming. The families are so glad that they that they finally said, yes, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, taste and see that these schools are good, and then you'll, you'll find a way. And that's what most of these families say. You know, yeah, it's a struggle. Private school is not cheap, but you're not going to have those contradictions on a daily basis. And I believe that God, with God's help, you'll find a way to be able to keep your child enrolled in a Christian school. And in all these years that we have been covering public education, private education here on Lifeline, I will tell you this. One thing I have never heard from a KFAX listener in almost 30 years, and that's this. We regret that we sent our child to a Christian school. 
Never hear it said. So to get more information, go online, kfax.com. That's kfax.com, and click on the Back to School banner. Or, again, you can call toll-free for more information, 800-947-5329. That's 800-947-KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before, um, some I think troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've Uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs? Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, uh, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, You know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. um, Youth have always been an important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at uh, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 
18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working, but that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across uh, across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing a quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on Uh, as kind of, in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned, We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between 
uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church, and I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be in bed at a certain time. And we understand that part of this is good parenting, but part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of <laughs> we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, and so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something, and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs 
both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, and the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront 
of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II, and and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything. And yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, uh, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the, the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, yep. I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, oh. that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations, and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, And Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church and the church needs young people, and when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches. Although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.